Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Another episode of Nightlight. I hope everyone blasted off to a great start to the week. Uh, remember about three or four months ago, there was the Mars rover landing and all the fascinating photos sent back to Earth. Um, just last week, uh, Sir Richard Branson did his private flight to the edge of space this morning Jeff Bezos uh, did a, a similar flight but you know, not to be outdone by uh, uh, Branson but uh, you know it, it was done on the 52nd anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing uh, later this month uh, will be the 50th anniversary of the first of the three Apollo missions, or first of the last three Apollo missions to the moon. Um, so t today's show corresponds with these human achievements in exploration. I'm thankful Monroe from Gold Dust Publicity for contacting me to let me know about this compelling new book that it examines the evolution of the American space program. Uh, our guest tonight is the esteemed journalist and author Earl Swift. Earl just published Across the Airless Wilds. Um, you know, we cover all types of history. Most of it's ancient, but uh, you know, obviously airless uh, Across the Airless Wilds is more modern history, um, but it does thoroughly examine and the development of the lunar rover and you know, the space program. Like looking at uh, about 1946 to 1971, um, you know, the moon, stars, sun, the heavens. 
fascinated the ancients, and they still inspire us today. Uh, so, so I guess uh, human need to look up into the heavens is what, kind of like a unifying theme of a lot of shows. Um, so you, you can learn more about Earl by going to his website, earlswift.com. Hi, Earl. How are you? How are you, Mark? Doing well. Oh, Thanks I'm fine. Oh, I'm I'm glad you're here. You, you, know, you, you have another book on cars, like it's like a 57 Chevy or uh, something like that. And now we're, we're going to be dealing with another kind of road trip uh, vehicle tonight. That's that's true. That's true. That yeah. earlier book was uh, about a 57 Chevy that I traced back through all 13 people who had owned it to the day it rolled out of the out of the factory. And I basically wrote a post-war portrait of the United States using that one car and that otherwise unconnected mosaic of humanity that it had shared that one particular car. And uh, so it was, it was quite a bit different from this book. Okay. Well, it's um, you know, there's the Americans and the love of the cars and getting out on the road. So uh, I don't think we'll be covering too many roads tonight, but uh, <laughs> you, you get you, you know this across uh, the air, airless wilds. It, it, you know, really is a Terrific book, you know, thoroughly researched. You know, you know we'll get into all, all that, but um, it, you know, maybe you know, we ought to just start with just you know, just one of the most basic questions is what made it, made you motivated to write a book about the lunar rover? Well. Um, I turned 13 the day that Apollo 15 touched down on the moon, uh, the 50th anniversary of which will be next week, a week from Saturday. And uh, I uh, don't remember much about the, the missions that came before. We we lived in England when uh, Apollo 11 touched down, and it was way too late at night with the time difference for a 10-year-old to stay up to watch that. At least my parents thought so. And, and so I don't remember that. Uh, I don't remember Apollo 12 vaguely remember the trouble with Apollo 13. Remember Alan Shepard hitting a golf ball in Apollo 14, and that was about it. But Apollo 15, I remember. And uh, and I remember, too, uh, the couple of missions that followed it in 1972. And really, the you know part of it was that I was a teenager, and so a little bit more aware of the world around me. Uh, part of it was that we had moved to Houston, and it was you know, everything NASA was pretty inescapable at the time. Uh, but really, the big reason was that the astronauts carried a new piece of gear with them on those missions that completely changed the face of lunar exploration, changed the entire nature of the Apollo program. Car! <laughs> These guys were driving around the lunar surface in what looked like a uh, stripped-down go-kart. And I just thought that was amazingly cool, and it stayed with me. And, and uh until the spring of 2019 when my editor at HarperCollins, a guy named Peter Hubbard, um, who's as much a space geek as I am, I guess, uh, 
sent me a, a, an email saying, don't you think it might be interesting to write a, you know, to look into a story about the lunar rover and, and what it did, what it was? And he really had to write no more than that. He had a receptive audience immediately. Um, and as it turned out, to be, it, it was a much more involved story that either of us could have suspected. Um, uh-huh. And uh, a, really a, a pretty fascinating one. Your book starts off with you meeting one of the principal characters in the space program. uh, Can can you explain your uh, trip to Huntsville and meeting... Sonny Mora? Morea. Yeah. Morea, he's 87 years, or he was 87 at the time? He was. This again was in the spring of 2019. I didn't didn't waste any time after Peter sent me that email. I jumped on the story right away and and, uh, and made several trips to Huntsville in 2019. But on that first visit, I met Sonny at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, which is a museum run by the state of Alabama that happens to have one of the three remaining actual Saturn Vs, the gargantuan rockets that carried the Apollo astronauts to the moon. Um, the other two are at the Johnson Space Center in Houston and at uh, the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. But this particular Saturn V is lying on its side, and it is such an enormous piece of machinery. It's 363 feet long when it's stacked, ready for liftoff. But uh, in the museum, it's its stages are separated so that you can see the engines on each. And Sonny Murray is one of those people who ought to be a household name but isn't. He um, he headed the program to develop the F-1 rocket engine, which is the most powerful engine that's ever been put to use. It's it's it powered the the lower the lowest stage, the first stage of the Saturn V. And uh, there were five of them stuck in the bottom of that rocket, and they generated together 7.5 million pounds of thrust, which is a number that sounds big but probably doesn't mean anything to people. But it would pull an office building out of the ground if if the rocket were tethered to that building. It's it's just wow. a crazy crazy amount of power. And um, he also troubleshot. He was he was added to the program to develop the the J-2 rocket, which is the rocket that powered uh, most memorably the third stage of the Saturn V, and it was the rocket that took the astronauts out of orbit and sent them on their way to the moon. And uh, without those two sets of rockets, there would have been no need for a lunar rover because there there was no space program without those. But he also, late in Apollo, was drafted to head up the crash program, the breakneck program, to develop a lunar lunar rover. Um, and um, and so he found himself on three different occasions at critical junctures in the development of the of the hardware that made those moon landings possible. And uh, I went to see him, you know, about the rover, but aware that he had done uh, this other stuff. And he, he, the most humble guy you could hope to imagine, you would never guess in a million years talking to him that he he had this history. He wore it very lightly, and he proved to be one of one of my principal sources on the book. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, and 
you know, you, you, know, you know, you did meet with, you know, tra- travel to meet with uh, Sonny, showed you the, uh, you know, model car as well. And uh, you went through all kinds of corporate uh documents between C- sent between Seattle and Huntsville. You know, we can get into that in a, in, in a little bit too. But you know, you you do document so much information. Uh, you know, maybe in just a, a few minutes, we'll get to the uh, Collier's uh, magazine article as well. I I wasn't aware of that either. You know. You, you really do have impeccable research in this book. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. Um, Forty years as a journalist, you you hope to get kind of good at it. But, uh, it's yeah. Um, no, it's it's. Uh, I'm I'm a nonfiction writer, and uh, yeah, facts aren't uh, all you need to establish the truth. You know they're they're but they're necessary uh, to establishing it and uh, and so I I tend to uh, hoover up every little piece of information I can I overreport every story generally uh, wind up with way more information than I need to tell it but the every piece of information you get informs somehow the stories yes, that you're telling and so you know so I, um, none of it goes to waste ultimately. Yeah, and okay. It, um, let's look at it, uh, in nineteen you know, in nineteen sixty nine. NASA originally envisioned ten missions to the moon. Uh, not all came to fruition. There's budget cuts, uh, and you. Know, you really you know go into uh Sonny's frustration uh and so many other people's just um uh, wondering why am i doing this kind of thing no on call is 24 hours a day for years uh but you know you, you know you really do focus on the these uh, achievements uh, in, in the latter stage of the program, but um, after you recount your meeting with Sonny, you uh, tell us a little bit about the Apollo 14 mission with Alan Shepard and Ed, Edgar Mitchell's walk on the moon and what were some of the problems that they encountered by just okay. uh, like sure. walking by being on foot? Uh, yeah, yeah, just being on foot and, and what you're only going like 50 yards from the lunar module. Well, you know, we sent missions <clears throat> that actually landed on the moon six times. The first three of those, Apollos 11, 12, and 14, the astronauts were on foot. The last three, 15, 16, and 17, they had wheels. Now, in those first three, 
it became clear very quickly with the with the first mission, certainly, when when um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin came back to Earth and had their technical debriefings after their mission, and they described what it was like moving around, um, you know, they kind of affirmed a lot of things that NASA had expected to hear about how difficult it was to move around on the lunar surface. These guys are wearing a suit that weighed more than they did. Um, an astronaut in his suit at the time of Apollo 11 <clears throat> excuse me, um, weighed about 370 pounds. And these were not big guys. So you're, you're looking at a 160-pound astronaut wearing 200 pounds plus of, and most of that, of course, was in the backpack that he wore that contained his life support. So you have on, you know, right from the get-go, you have somebody who's, who's just consists of a lot more mass than he's used to. The suit was was 21 layers thick. So imagine wearing a dozen raincoats, one over the other, so that this thing is, you know, it's heavy, it's unyielding, and then you pump it full of air to the stiffness of an all-season radial so that just bending your arm takes real muscle. Closing your hand around a tool exhausts your hand in a matter of minutes. And that's that's what this the Apollo A7L spacesuit was like. It was it was pump full of air to five pounds per square inch or close to it. And just bending was, was it, it required real effort. You pile on top of that the fact that the astronaut in his helmet cannot see his own feet. Uh, you know, the, the ground underneath him is uncertain. Layer on the weirdness of being in one-sixth gravity. And getting from point A to point B, it looked like a lot of fun on TV with those guys bunny hopping around and such. Mm-hmm. But those bunny hops... Those bunny hops took effort, and that effort translated into higher metabolic rates, which in turn chewed through the air and cooling water supplies in their backpacks. So not only were they limited just physically by how far they could walk, you know, by the suit and by the conditions, but they were limited in time. The effort required to do the physical movement cut into their time because it it tore through their supplies. So... This was a problem that NASA recognized uh, even before Apollo 11. Really, they they had a pretty good idea that this was coming, and so the you know the rover was um, was their way of getting around it. It promised not only to extend the astronauts' range, but it promised to give them cool down periods in between their scientific work, so that they could extend the time that they spent outside. And to, to demonstrate just how effective it was, on Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, uh, you know, they, they all of their travels on the moon would fit inside a football field with a lot of yardage left over. The farthest either of them wandered from the lunar module was about 65 yards. On Apollo 14, the last mission on foot, in which you know, Alan Shepard and Ed Mitchell went to the uh, from Morro Highlands in the moon, a, a pretty pretty tough terrain compared to what Apollo 11 had been in. And their their mission was to walk a half mile to a crater, the Cone Crater, uh, that the scientific uh, experts kind of helping put together the mission wanted them to get to the very edge of that crater so they could sample rocks thrown from deep beneath the moon's surface and try to get lunar bedrock. So they they start out from the uh, the lunar module, knowing exactly where the the crater is, 
and uh, and not having far to go, you know, half a mile, and almost uh, immediately become disoriented because the on top of all the other things I mentioned about the weirdness of of the moon, the sky is completely black. Um, the lunar surface itself, the dust, the regolith, reflects light so that it's difficult to see details of of the surface. And uh, because there are no visual yardsticks, no clouds, no houses, no no trees, no telephone poles, the things that you and I use every day without even thinking about it to judge distance. And because mm-hmm. there's no atmosphere and things don't become hazy with distance, things that are a long way away but big look exactly the same as things far smaller but closer in. And it is very tough to tell how far you've walked, where you are in relation to other objects. So these guys got, you know, they got turned around on their way to the, the cone crater. They never did get to it. They got within 65 feet of it and didn't know it. And um, so then you, you go to a, Apollo 15, the first mission with the rover, and Dave Scott and Jim Irwin unfold it from the side of the lunar module first thing, hop in and take off, and they wind up driving 17-plus miles, and they explore an area that features mountains the size of Kilimanjaro or bigger, they, uh, they explore the edge of a, a canyon that's a mile wide and a 1,000 feet deep. They climb the side of one mountain several hundred feet up. They do that twice, um, two different days, all of which would have been completely impossible if they were on foot. All of these things were too far from the lunar module from base camp to have even reached if they were on foot. So it just changed, you know, and they were able to sample from not only those places, but from various points on the undulating plane in which they'd landed, it was just a completely different mission. It was as if you were, you know, you just started from scratch with a, with a much better plan. And, uh, and it all came down to a spindly little stripped down go-kart of a vehicle that, um, that people on earth tended to call, you know, a moon buggy or the moon car, but which was in reality a spacecraft with wheels. And you know, what I thought was you know really interesting was uh, uh, von Braun's um, just Collier's magazine, or like how accurate that was, you know. Foreshadowing what was the NASA program had in uh, you know could could go into you know the future of America's space program, um, and even yeah, what, what it, in, in, in like early six or early the mid sixties, he told uh, a, a group of a- astronauts. At a luncheon, uh, that yeah, they they were going to have, or you know, predicted that they were going to have a car. You know, his, um, his visions for the program were were just really amazing, and, and they're based on some really good uh, sci-fi stories from like the turn of the century. Um, that that really inspired him too. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's talk about Werner von Braun because he's he's kind of the origin story for this this mm-hmm. whole enterprise. Uh, you know, von Braun's a, a problematic problematic character because he's a, a former Nazi. He was an SS officer during World War II, and he his primary job was to develop the world's first ballistic missile, the V2, which was designed to kill allies, you know, i.e., us. And uh, but at the end of the war, he surrendered to the to the Americans to get ahead of the Russians and um, and the U.S. military decided that he was a valuable enough asset that he should be snuck into the country with a hundred out of his German engineers and uh, set up to help the U.S. develop its ballistic missile program. And while he was employed by the U.S. Army developing missiles in Huntsville at the Redstone Arsenal, um, he was tapped to take part in a uh, a package of stories that Collier's Magazine was putting together. This was in 1952. Most of the others involved were scientists of various sorts, academics. He was a, you know, the only Army engineer of the bunch. And his piece of, of this package of stories, the, the stories, as, you know, the whole package was devoted to the inevitability of, of America's entry into space. It was basically predicting that within 25 years, we were going to be in space. And so hold on, buckle your seatbelts, here we go. And Von Braun's two pieces of that were a a two-part story that predicted what the first visit to the moon would be like. And a number of the things that he foresaw did not come to pass. Um, The whole style of how we get to the moon was different from the way we eventually did it. But the basic elements are all there, you know, multi-stage rockets, uh, which, of course, we saw in the form of the Saturns. Um, a moon car. Now, he, in this 1952 story, so, first saw the moon car being a hulking, multi-ton tank of a, a behemoth, just a monster vehicle that would have a pressurized cabin aboard that would several astronauts could pile into. And uh, it would more or less be a shelter as much as transportation. They'd live in the thing while they traveled hundreds of miles across the lunar surface on exploratory odysseys. And uh, anyway, that vision of that first vision of a lunar lunar rover kind of stuck for a good decade. When you look at NASA's early studies into lunar mobility in the, in the real early 60s, they, they pretty much feature a giant hulking tank-like vehicle they called it the Mobile Laboratory or MoLab, um, but you know that was the model, and the expectation was Apollo got going, and the later Apollo missions were were following up on the first land, first couple of landings. You'd send a second Saturn V up on each Apollo mission, and it would deposit this MoLab on the surface a few you know a few days or weeks ahead of the arriving astronauts, and um, then the astronauts would land nearby climb into it, and off they'd go for hundreds of miles in a couple of weeks. Um, so the, you know, on the one hand, his vision wasn't entirely correct, or wasn't, wasn't the way things turned out, but on the other hand, it affected the way things unfolded, uh, because NASA stuck with that idea for a long, long time. And uh, just, to, just to bounce back uh, even further than 1952, when you mentioned science fiction, 
you know, people have been writing about driving on the moon since before the, the Wright brothers flew. There was a Polish science fiction writer who put together a novel uh, in, back to 1901. And uh, all through the 20s and 30s and 40s, you see moon cars amply represented in, in science fiction. So this mm-hmm. is something that people had thought about. But Von Braun was the first to treat the subject in a nonfiction style, if you can call that kind of futuristic writing nonfiction. Um, anyway, in the 60s, uh, he did, in fact, tell Gene Cernan and a group of other astronauts at a lunch shortly after Cernan joined the astronaut corps that uh, that they'd be driving someday. And it wasn't a prediction. He was It was a promise. He was stating it as a, as a done deal. And uh, despite that, in 1967, uh, NASA's budget was cut, and it became pretty clear that there were going to be no second Saturn Vs sent to the moon on Apollo missions, that the Apollos were going to be one rocket missions, and there were only going to be so many of them. And, uh, you know, at the time, NASA and a great many people, I think, figured that Apollo was just the first chapter in a long lunar campaign, and that after the Apollo program, no matter what budget cuts it might be, enduring in the short term, there would, be, there would be other programs right behind it, and those would be more ambitious, and they'd build on what had happened in Apollo. So there wasn't tremendous panic over the fact that there wasn't going to be a rover in Apollo. But um, a group of engineers uh, at General Motors who had been working as private contractors on these NASA studies into MOLAB and other early rover concepts they were unprepared to just drop the project and walk away. They'd spent a decade of their lives working on this thing in one capacity or another, and they wanted to see it through. So one of them, a guy named Ference Pavlik, still alive and well, living in Santa Barbara, California, um, hmm. took it upon himself to spend four months of trial and error trying to come up with a, a completely shrunken down version uh, of a rover, of, a, of an open lunar Jeep, as they called it. Uh, that would be light enough and small enough to not need its additional rocket that could, in fact, fit aboard the already tiny lunar module. There's only one space, in, uh, one cargo space in which you could fit anything, only one open cargo space. And that was a wedge-shaped hole in the lower half, the descent stage of the lunar module. And this hole was about the size and shape of a pup tent standing on its end. So it was a wedge a wedge shape with a point facing in. And Pavlik uh, figured out how to make a tiny car that folded like a business letter to fit inside that space. And then he built a one-six scale model of it that folded. And then he and his boss, Sam Romano, took it to Huntsville to show it to Von Braun. And so uh, the guy who originated the concept wound up being the recipient of this pitch from two guys from GM who basically were selling him on his own idea. And uh, they came in, demonstrated the model, showed how it folded, and the meeting ended, as legend has it, by him slamming the top of his desk with his fist and saying, we must do this. And the rest is history. At that point, we're talking pretty late in the game. The uh, the first moon landing was only a year or less away. And so I, uh, uh, after uh, a lot of further studying on NASA's part, uh, the agency finally uh, decided they would go with the rover. They made that decision about a month, a month before the first lunar 
lunar mission, and uh, and they let out contracts just before Apollo 12, so months after Apollo 11 had landed, which gave them you know, very little time to actually build the thing, 17 months. Um, Boeing and GM working together won the contract, and that's when uh, that's that's when things got pretty pretty hairy. Uh, mm-hmm. It was really a, a race against the clock. Right, and, and you know, you were talking about like one one of uh, Braun's. Uh, early ideas was like some kind of tank and uh you know other ideas were like three sets of wheels the archimedes screws you know kind of like an accordion bus you also mentioned like one design turned out to be like a oscar meyer wiener mobile well, that was uh, yeah i mean there were there were a lot of a lot of variations on the molab and and there yeah. was one from the Grumman Corporation of of Long Island, New York, that uh, that it did resemble an Oscar Mayer Wiener mobile quite a bit. I thought uh, <laughs> it's a strange looking thing. Um, you can still see that at the Cradle of Aviation Museum, by the way, in, in Long Island. They have that prototype hanging from the ceiling. Uh, but the uh, you know the Bendix came up with a with a a prototype as well. GM never actually built a prototype. GM and Boeing didn't. They built models, um, a lot of scale models, a lot of mock-ups, but they never actually built a working prototype like those other two companies did. But the, you know, the, what they had in common was, and they weren't tanks, they were just tank-like. By the time mm-hmm. Molab came along, the, the Caterpillar tractor treads that Von Braun had foreseen in the 1952 Collier's stories, that had been, those had been replaced by wheels. And so... Uh, GM was very enamored at the time of, of six-wheel drive, a six-by-six six sort of setup. Bendix went with a four-by-four. Crumman four. Um, went with one that, with a design that's kind of hard to describe, but I guess it was a four-by-four four as well. Um, and, uh, you know, what they had in common was that they were all pressurized. They were all super heavy. Uh, we're talking, you know, six, eight tons. Um, so these, these are not... Uh, aircraft style machines they are lumbering big you know pull your way mm-hmm. through a, another celestial body sort of sort of vehicles um, now while all those studies were happening there were a bunch of other proposals that had no wheels at all you know a lot of companies that mm-hmm. weren't part of the molab studies and weren't part of the follow-on programs that followed molab um, they came up with their own ideas and pitched them to nasa and so you had uh, a proposal uh, from TRW, for instance, for a lunar hovercraft called the Lunagem. You had uh, a, a, a professor at Stanford proposed what amounted to a giant pogo stick that carried two astronauts and could leap hundreds of feet into the air while it traveled hundreds of feet across the lunar surface. You had, uh, well, we'll get to that. Okay. But you also had, you also had Philco's lunar worm which was just like it sounds. It was a worm, a worm, 10 feet in diameter, 35 feet long, that wriggled along, would have wriggled along the lunar surface at like five miles an hour. It turned out that it weighed an awful lot. So that's what, among other things, did that idea in. And then you had the lunar flying units, the LFUs, which were pursued by 
not by Huntsville, not by Von Braun and his people, but by uh, NASA in Houston at the Manned Spacecraft Center, now the Johnson Spacecraft Center, or Johnson Space Center. Um, the LFUs were a... Uh, it's hard to look at them today as anything more but than a dream uh, because they, the whole idea is so fraught with peril, so dangerous just on its face that you can't imagine that NASA really pursued it for as long as it did. But the idea grew out of the jet packs that you, you know, the jet belt that you saw Sean Connery wearing Thunderball. Uh, right. You know, that tended to run uh, the ones that you see on Earth tended to run on hydrogen peroxide. They can only stay airborne for like 20, 21 seconds because they'd run out of fuel, and you couldn't put more fuel in them because a man had to wear the thing. You know, he could only carry so much weight. He had to wear fireproof pants while wearing it. It was not a practical way to get around, but it, it was great at carnival, you know, it was a great carnival attraction. Uh, that idea got NASA thinking about more substantial versions of the same sort of thing, a, a platform that an astronaut could stand or sit on and fly around once he landed in the lunar module. He'd unload this lunar flying unit, step aboard, and then he'd be able to bounce around the lunar surface, traveling miles you know, on each hop, and do the sorts of things through the non-existent air that he would have done, you know, that he turned out doing years later on the rover. Uh, and, you know, there's just no way it could have worked without just producing a lot of dead astro astronauts. I mean, that's, that's putting it in, in delicately, but it's true. It would have just, uh, it would have led to mayhem. And uh, thankfully, finally NASA stepped away from the idea and, uh, and the way then cleared for the wheeled vehicle that we got. Oh, and, and speaking of uh, wheels, you know, you know, there's a lot of information about different types of Wheels that were envisioned. The what? Uh, uh, where is it in my notes? Like eight hundred uh, threads of uh, titanium uh, weave together. Um, but it, you, know, you, you also draw our attention to uh, one of the wheels. Uh, designs was based on a 1858 English patent. Okay, let's, let's that... go back to the beginning and talk about the lunar surface because that's why okay. there was okay. such interest in the wheels. You know, the right. uh, when NASA, well, even before there was a NASA, when you know the earliest when Von Braun and others were talking about the notion of lunar mobility, one of the problems was that no one had been, no one knew what the lunar surface was like. No one knew whether it would support the weight of a man, let alone a, a spacecraft. There were theorists who firmly believed that the upper several hundred, if not thousands of feet of the lunar surface were loose dust that if you know a, a spacecraft came down on it, they, it would just disappear below the surface. It would just sink immediately. So there was, there was uh, some trepidation, needless to say, about, about the whole notion of lunar visitation early on and great debate as to how one could move across it. And that's, it was at that stage, we're talking 1960, 1961, very early on, uh, that you saw General Motors 
uh, under the direction of a brilliant engineer named M.G. Greg Becker, Polish man. He had been a, a refugee of World War II, had come to Canada first during the war, had, was, became an officer in the Canadian Army and led its, its mobility kind of research efforts, mostly on tanks and moving across the Arctic, that sort of thing. But then got interested uh, after Sputnik in the whole question of, of mobility on other celestial bodies, especially the moon. And um, it became a, uh, a driving sideline of the General Motors Defense Research Laboratory in Santa Barbara when he and his right-hand man, Ference Pavlik, the guy I mentioned earlier who built the model, uh -huh. took it to Von Brown, when they made the, the move uh, to General Motors in 1960. So the... Uh, you know, you have Pavlix and Becker together coming up with an Archimedean screw to go through this light, fluffy dust that they thought might be on the surface. They came up with uh, with a, a new kind of caterpillar track that uh, that featured no plates, just uh, the, the the grousers, the tread, you know, the raised cleats. That's all this tread. That's all this this track had on it. It was a strange looking thing. And then they came up with various types of wheels. And one of the things, one of the, the wheels they studied was a, an 1858 patent from a, uh, an engineer in, in England for a, um, for a wheel that was made out of closely spaced hoops, the ends of which were connected to the wheel hub. So you, you basically wound up with a wheel hub with a bunch of hoops coming out in a circle around it, and then you could cover that with fabric you'd have a, a wheel that would be super lightweight and would absorb impact and act pretty much like a pneumatic tire does in terms of softness of ride and such. And so these guys got interested in that, and they, you know, they built a, a number of, of prototypes and, and models using various forms of wire wheel. And, um, and it's from that that uh, they eventually derived a wire mesh wheel it was tight enough and strong enough to support the weight of MOLAB. They originally came up with the with the kind of the wire mesh wheel that we're familiar with from the lunar rover on this much bigger mobile laboratory, and, and the wheels were five feet high. And there are pictures of of them standing next to these things, and you can see that it's made of wire mesh and it's strong enough to support a lot of weight. This was a a pretty great design. Um, when the rover uh, came along, when NASA gave the green light after Pavlik made his demonstration to, to Von Braun, uh, what that meant was that General Motors, while it hadn't designed a rover per se, except for Pavlik's model, it had already been working on pieces of the rover for years. And that wire, that wire mesh wheel was one of the pieces it had experimenting with for you know, like eight years at that point. And so that really gave them a leg up in, in terms of knowing that they had a good design and knowing that, um, you know, they, they kind of bolted together pieces of earlier projects in shrunken down form to come up with the, you know, a reliable amalgamation of, of everything they knew worked. And, uh, and that's, that's really what, what got us the rubber we got. Now, the wheels on the rubber are amazing. They are made of... 800 strands of zinc-coated 
stainless steel piano wire that is woven into a tight mesh and then connected to a, a spun aluminum hub. And there's, a, there's an inner wheel within that tire uh, made out of titanium hoops so that if you hit an object with the tire, you know, punch a dent in it, basically, uh, the object you're hitting will eventually, if it pushes far enough into the tire, will hit that inner stop, that bump stop inside, and the tire won't deform any more than that. It's about three and a half inches of deformation that, that it enables or that it allows to happen. And uh, the real advantage to this construction, despite you know, besides the fact that it was super tough and behaved like a pneumatic tire, was that the whole thing, wheel included, weighed 12 pounds, which is the kind of weight savings you needed if you were going to build a rover that could weigh no more than 400, which was the original NASA goal for the thing. Mm-hmm. It's just an impossible, you know, the batteries alone weigh a third of that. So you're looking at a, a, a just a tremendously difficult engineering job to to build something so featherweight and yet strong enough to withstand whatever it might encounter on the very broken lunar surface. Yeah, uh, the engineering is just uh, amazing. What you recount is uh, really amazing. And and, uh, the weight was always an issue because Over a certain amount of weight, reduced hover time. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So any any cargo, any cargo that you put in the lunar lunar module was put there with the knowledge that it cut in to the amount of time you could stay airborne. And I'm using airborne in quotes here because because there is no air. But but the if you remember Apollo 11, when Neil Armstrong was bringing the Eagle in for a landing, he disliked the you know the landing spot that the autopilot basically had picked for him. So he took control of the lunar module and landed it himself. And it took quite a bit of hovering time. When he finally put the, the machine down on the surface, there were only a few seconds of fuel left. NASA had that very much in mind when it gave the, the go-ahead to add a 400-pound rover to the lunar module, but you know anything that was added took away hover time. And the, and the shorthand math that NASA used was that 10 pounds of weight added weight equals one second of hover. So it doesn't take many pounds to, to really cut into your margin of safety. So that was that was very high end on the mind. Now, as it turned out, uh, Boeing and General Motors were never able to get it to 400. They they tried mightily to get it there, but the uh, the rover in Apollo 15 weighed 464 pounds. The one in 16 weighed 462, and the one on 17 weighed 470. So they were all in the same ballpark, about 78 pounds on the moon. Okay, and you know, but you know, we're talking uh, a little bit about the lunar surface, and you might have a lot more dust in one area. If, you know, Closer to a uh, crater, uh, but you know there's a lot of testing done on Earth. You know you are, are uh, going over uh, testing on the, the sand dunes at Pismo Beach. 
uh, sure. Cinder Lake uh, craters, you know, volcanic crater at, at Needles, California. So, you know, they're putting these types of vehicles and, and you know, uh, the wheels through all kinds of uh, you know, various testing uh, that that they thought would simulate the uh, lunar surface, plus you know, driving through uh, you know the man-made craters and you know, just say Arizona, and 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 right. the, the, those parks are still, or uh, the, the Cinder Lake Park is still a, a tourist destination. I don't know. I, I don't think a lot of people know about it. But to get back oh, they do to, now. for a second to the whole to the whole to the whole notion of testing, uh, it's true that they they tested each component, you know, as well as they could on Earth. But the fact is that the lunar rover is that that rare piece of Apollo gear that could not be tested in the environment for which it was intended until it was actually used on a mission. You know, all the other all the other stuff, you know, all the spacecraft and whatnot went up in unmanned fashion before it ever carried people, went up into space to prove that it could function where it was meant to function. But the rover wasn't like that. The rover was tested, you know, one component at a time maybe on Earth. And, you know, they built they built 1G models for the astronauts to do their driver's head in. But there was never an opportunity to test the rover in any sort of realistic 1-6 gravity moon conditions environment until Apollo 15 landed on the moon. You know, when Nan unloaded the rover in the Hadley-Apennine region and put the thing on its wheels for the first time, that's when the rover started its testing. That first drive was really its, its shakedown. And uh, so it was, it was sent to the moon with high confidence that everything had been checked out as well as it could humanly be checked out on Earth. But with the knowledge that hey, you know, this is really the test right here. Now, the, the, uh, the testing you're talking about is mostly, mostly driver's ed. Uh, they, took, uh, they had a 1G model of the, of the rover that built a one-gravity model, in other words, a beefier model for Earth. Now, now that was necessary because the, the moon rover, the, one, the three that we sent to the moon, were intent, they were built only for 1-6 one, one gravity, and that was a function of how light they had to be. So, for instance, the floorboard under the seats was a 50th of an inch thick, a sheet of ribbed aluminum, no wider than the thinnest of wood veneers on a cheap piece of furniture. So this was, you know, if you had stepped on, on a moon rover on Earth, you'd snap it in half. You'd break the, you'd coat right through the floorboard. You'd squash flat the wheels but they worked in 1-6 gravity. So this, the 1G gravity trainers, there's one built by General Motors. There's another one, the Grover, built for only $2,000 by the U.S. Geological Survey in Flagstaff, Arizona. Uh, they enabled the astronauts to drive a machine that worked the same as the, as the actual rover did. All the controls matched. Uh, it, beha- you know, it had the same kind of suspension. It was run by the same sort of electric motor, more or less. Uh, but the driving experience was quite a bit different. If you hit a bump on the moon while driving at, you know, at, well, at the blistering speed of six or seven miles an hour, you might have three wheels come off, off the ground and kind of hang there for a while. You know, it was like you were driving in slow-mo. 
the whole front end would come up and then sink back down to the ground and, and it wouldn't hit with a big thump and, you know, knock your teeth out. It would kind of, you know, it would land with a sigh. And, um, and so it was, it was a lot like driving, driving a boat um, in, in kind of a, in heavy swells more than it was driving a, a Jeep, say, going mudding in a Jeep and, you know, Carrying your way through a through a piece of of bog land or something, it was it was uh, it was a handful to control, but it was very different from driving an earth car, and and so that driver's head was handy in just getting the hang of having steering on both ends of the vehicle, that sort of thing. But it was not necessarily the best simulation of what it would really be like to drive in one six gravity, which was. A bit of you know, a bit of a freaky experience. So while all of this preparation, testing, the driver's ed, you know, just uh, mentioned, um, you know, the yeah, about at the same time, the Russians are actually pretty well advanced in the, their space program and you know America was really getting caught up uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about you know the adversarial uh you know, relationship going on in the you know 69 70 71 time period between America and Russia well, in terms of the space, space program, I think by, by then, the race was over. I mean, the, the, the race effectively ended, uh, I mean, practically ended with Apollo 8 when we sent a rocket around the moon. It certainly ended by Apollo 10 when we had a dress rehearsal for the landing and did everything but land. And then we put the nail in the coffin with, with the first landing and then just rubbed salt in the Russians' wounds by putting a second crew down on the lunar surface before the end of 1969, you know, before the end of the decade as JFK had challenged us to do. So, it, mm -hmm. you know, by, by this time period, the Russians were out of the picture in terms of an actual manned landing. However, they did put the first rover on the moon. They put the Lunacod 1 on the moon, in a, you know, in 1970. And, uh, and it was a, uh, it was a remote, you know, they decided to go go with robotics at that point. Um, and it was a remote uh, round tub on eight wheels that that showed that the engineers in the USSR and in Santa Barbara, certainly at GM, had been thinking along the same lines for a long, long time because they came up with different but recognizably similar solutions to the same problems of the wheel design for instance, the you know uh, just the, the whole the way the thing was structured, the metals used, that sort of stuff. And Lunacod turned out to be uh, you know it was it was an ungainly looking thing, it, it was just awkward, but uh, but very successful. It worked just as planned. It didn't go far, but it went. But then you know we put the rover on on the moon's surface a, a few months later, and it had people in it, and they drove, and they collected moon rocks. And they were able to explore uh -huh. places that had never been seen before. And over the next, you know, on those last three last three missions, astronauts drove 56 miles, which is just mind-boggling to me. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever had a 1969 General Motors product, but I've had two of them. I've had two 69 Oldsmobiles, and I love those cars with all my heart. But if you were to ask me, Earl, would you, would you like to go to the moon, and would you trust your 1969 Olds, uh, you know, Vista Cruiser, which one of them was, to um, take you 4.72 miles away from your lunar module over a 250-foot ridge uh, down the other side, and then would you trust it to you know get you back safely to your one way home? I might I might pause before answering. <laughs> Interesting way to look at it, this situation. So, so what America gets the lunar rover on? Okay, you know driving, you know. Um, you know, seeing a lot more of the moon than all the previous uh, missions. Um, it, it, you know, they uh, it, it got them to uh, get different places to collect rocks, uh, and get uh, like volcan a, a volcanic uh, rock. Uh, you know, well, they were on proof that a piece. They were able to prove that a piece of the moon that they had thought was volcanic was not. So it did, it did kind of the opposite, but it was just as important. You know, the, the big thing is that, that the rover, uh, you know, of course, it allowed them to collect a lot more in, in terms of geological samples, to do a lot more science, because it had a payload. They didn't have to carry all those samples yeah, around Yeah, yeah holding it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so three-quarters of the rocks we brought back were brought back on rovers, and um, – you know, the big thing, too, is that, that not only did it extend their range and, and their time outside, but it enabled NASA to to tailor make the last two missions especially, but the first one as well, the, all 15, 16, and 17, to tailor make those missions So, with a rover in mind. And so they put them, the astronauts down in far more interesting and challenging places, knowing that they'd be, get, be able to get to different points in these places to sample different kinds of lunar geology. And so it was like each mission became like several previous missions combined. They were able to do just uh, just so much more in terms of science and in terms of real exploration, Captain Cook kind of exploration, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's just, uh, it was transformative. Yeah, and, and you... Make us aware of the uh, seismic studies that were done, the uh, electrical properties of the lunar soil. I, all you, know, you can't start you know, detonating stuff right next. You know, if you can only walk 50 feet from you know, the lunar module, <laughs> yeah, you can't you know, set, set, start setting off dynamite. <laughs> well, true. true. Not while you're there, anyway. Yeah, but, uh, you know, but those seismic charges were supposed to go off after they left the boot, no matter where they put them. But yeah, you, point well taken. They did a lot of um, a lot of experimentation that the rover made possible because it gave them uh, a bigger palette on which to work. You know, they just had so much more space to conduct science on, and um, you know, they were able to use the. Yeah, they were just able to use it in, in a lot of really creative ways. And, um, and if, you know, there were a lot of 
a lot of things about those missions had changed. They had better spacesuits for those last three missions. They had a slightly beefed up rigor module that allowed them to stay longer an extra day on the surface. But when you look at the single addition that really set the missions apart, it comes it comes down to that little that little four hundred and sixty some odd pound car. That spacecraft on wheels. And what, uh, within the last uh, couple years, um, a vacuum-sealed uh, jar of some rocks was just recently opened. Yeah, it was sealed during Apollo 17 at Ballet Crater by uh, Jack Schmidt and Gene Cernan, and then opened up, yeah, it has been the last couple of years. And... Uh, Uncorked. Uh, the idea was you'd collect a sample that uh, that only future technology could really take advantage of, of studying. So you wanted to keep it vacuum sealed and uh, and completely untainted by any earthly interference. And uh, and I, I suppose NASA reached the point where they figured our technology had advanced far enough, and they uncorked it. Okay, and they also discovered ice crystals. Well, no, the, no, the NASA—I mean, the Apollo astronauts did not. But um, but lunar orbiters in the years since have discovered the presence of water ice in the moon. And in 2023, they're going to send a the Ames Research Center in California has put together, with the help of folks at, at the Johnson Space Center, a rover called the Viper that will go to the lunar south pole and will will prospect for this ice and the you know there's no question that the ice is there the question is how much of it and how how accessible it is and if it turns out to be pretty plentiful and easily gotten that could affect plans for putting a a colony on the moon you can you can basically do a lot more in terms of food fuel and water mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, for any any residency on the moon, if you've got ice already there, you don't have to transport it. Water's heavy, you know, eight eight pounds a gallon. So it's a it's a big deal. We'll see. You know, we'll see where it goes. They don't know what answer they'll get. That's it'll be uh, very interesting to watch the Viper rover and see how it does. Cool. Uh, hey, Earl, uh, I know uh, you had. Um, and, and get get back to work. Um, and I I don't know if you want to keep going or uh, c- come back another time to c- cover your. Uh, I like to talk about your Tangier Island book, but I I know you had um. Uh, get get back to some business. Do you, know, do, do you want to uh, wrap up? Uh, you know, with any other aspects of the, um, yeah, you know, concluding remarks on all the achievements, or you, know, you want to keep keep going? Well, yeah, for, your for, call. Uh, you're run, you're, you're the boss. I'm I'm uh, I'm happy to stick around if you've got a few minutes more. Uh, Oh sure. You're yeah, sure. Okay. What um it, it is 
Okay, you know, with the uh, Mars rover, you know, what Jeff Bezos did today is, you know, are we just seeing just a continuation of some of the ideas that we learned from these um, you know, explorations of space, uh, you know, you know, particularly like, you know, the uh, is the Mars rover somewhat similar to the uh, lunar rovers? Well, that's a very interesting question because um, there's no direct lineage to speak of between the actual lunar rovers and, say, you know, Perseverance uh, or Curiosity or Sojourner, for that matter, any of, the, any of the Mars rovers. But if you go back to the work that M.G. Becker and Frank Pavlik, or Ferenc Pavlik were doing at General Motors in Santa Barbara earlier, when they were first looking at those wire wheels from the 1858 British patent, for instance, and when they were first uh, looking at you know, building small-scale models of six-wheeled, six-by-six rovers, which was the... That was a design they really favored. They liked a, a six-wheeled rover that had a flexible frame. And what they found was that it could climb over doggone near anything. Uh, you know, a rover with six wheels and a frame that could bend all three ways. You know, it could, it could, uh, uh, it could roll, it could yaw, and it could pitch uh, freely. Uh, it could keep all six of its wheels on the ground all the time, no matter how crazy the terrain beneath those wheels got. That was the big advantage. And so when it came to an obstacle, it could climb obstacles almost twice as tall as the wheels. And it just, uh, mm. you know, it would kind of just worm its way over obstacles with the, you know, the, it would hit a, an obstacle. If you can imagine a, a, a rover coming to a step that's almost twice as tall as, as its wheels, um, the first set of wheels would start climbing as the second two sets of wheels were pushing. And then as the first set of wheels got up to the top of the step, well, now you've got the second set of wheels making the climb, and you've still got the third set of wheels pushing. Then you have the first set of wheels going over, and, and it's now on top of the step pulling while that last step or that last set of wheels is pushing, and the one in the middle is still, you know, it's completing its climb. And then finally, you know, near the finish, you've got two sets of wheels up front pulling that third set of wheels. And, and it was shocking how well a flexible frame and six wheels did. So when the Mars rover started development, there was great interest in that, that kind of thinking from you know, GM's thinking back in the early 60s. And it was studied anew. Uh, and a, a, an engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory named Don Bickler came up with a variation on the same idea. Uh, he he came up with a, a suspension that took, it was a six-wheeled rover, just like the, the GM models had been, but he separated those wheels completely from the body of the craft onto a, a suspension, um, a hinged suspension that operated independently of the body. And the effect was very much like a, a having that body be elastic. Uh, in In this case, the the suspension had no elastic parts at all. It was called a rocker bogey suspension, and it has been the defining 
design feature of every rover we've sent to Mars, being the you know the the real genius of perseverance in terms of its ability to get around. So there is a lineage between earlier GM concepts and what we now have operating on Mars. So well, they're cousins, okay. I guess, to the lunar rover. They have the same parents, in a way. Okay. Or, or grandparents. Okay. Yeah. It, it, no, 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 that makes sense. Um, and you know, it also came away, you know, uh, from reading your book about like how advanced the, the Nazis and uh, Eastern Bloc scientists were in what the 1940s and 50s and you know they all came to america you know some with uh, on the operation paperclip but you know they really had some amazing ideas that um Help to put them, you know, make you know America's space program uh, tops in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the Soviets got a bunch of Nazi rocket scientists or rocket engineers as well, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, we got the good, we got the best of the of the pick, uh, no question about it. But um, there was there was German engineering behind uh, the, the space programs, the rockets and both, both space programs. And not only that, but um, I think it's pretty safe to say that uh, that our entire ballistic missile defense system and offense system uh, through the, the 50s and uh, probably well into the 60s relied on German know-how. Um, you know, I mean, it's important to remember that Alan Shepard went to space on the nose of an ICBM. So for that matter, it didn't all of the Mercury guys. Uh, those rockets were not built for space. They were built to carry warheads. And, uh, and they were they were modified significantly for, for space duty. But in their bones, those were missiles. And uh, and that's the, that's the work that Von Braun and the Germans started doing. Now, that work was incredibly informative in developing the much bigger rockets to come that would be needed to get, you know, people and gear beyond Earth's gravity. Uh, you know, the, the it's it's difficult to overstate the challenge that these guys faced in coming up with uh, the thrust, the, the the sheer, you know, grunt the brawn necessary uh, to lift these rockets beyond beyond the atmosphere. I mean, that that is uh, it's, well, it's it's the most wasteful aspect of, of space travel. It's it's the it's the one part that that's uh, that remains vexatious is just the tremendous difficulty of getting off the ground and getting into space. Once you're in space, things get a lot easier. Um, that's tough. Gravity and the atmosphere, they combine to make it very tough. And what are the 
effects, you know, the legacy of these uh, Apollo missions. You know, what you know, what what we saw this morning with uh, the old oldest and youngest person uh, being sent up into space on a what uh, privately funded rocket you know, is that all you yeah, know, Funk. Part, part of the you know being like the grand grandchild of um you know the you know this Apollo uh, program Well, yeah, it's, you know, the Apollo program, you got to understand everybody involved in developing these private side rockets uh, and these programs grew up during the Apollo period. So whether or not their rockets derive inspiration from the Saturn V, um, their builders, their conceivers derived inspiration, you can bet, from the exploits of the astronauts and those missions back in the you know, 1969, 70, 71, and 72. Um, you know, it left a mark on everybody who was alive at the time, I think. It, uh, you know, it, it <laughs> and you know you've heard a million times since, gosh, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't insert whatever earthbound problem you have right, you know, right there. Um, it, it inspired hope in the species and its prospects for the future and great frustration that we hadn't been able to sort out what seemed to be pretty mundane problems next to putting a guy on the moon um, and, uh, and continues to do so. You know, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was unsustainable in the long run. Apollo was incredibly wasteful in terms of, you know, the only piece of the spacecraft that returned to Earth was the capsule. Everything else was discarded along the way. That was an expensive piece of gear. You know, these missions cost $450 million in 1969 dollars um, a piece. So we're talking a lot of money. Um, it, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think you, if you were to, were to talk to people who were with NASA at the time, whether they be astronauts, engineers, administrators, what have you, um, I think they would not have believed back then that we wouldn't have continued going to the moon, that these 50 years since have seen us remain in low Earth orbit and never leave it, um, with people anyway. And uh, I think that if you talk to them today, you'd find that there's you know a great deal of melancholy about that. And I don't think that's too strong a word. I think melancholy is the is the right way to put it. Just that uh, that it proved to be a dead end program, and and nobody foresaw that happening. They didn't see it as a dead end program at the time. They saw it as continuing, like I said earlier, a long lunar campaign. And uh, you know, I mean, it's when you when you consider some of the things that didn't go up in Apollo, like the MoLab it's pretty clear that the ambitions for our presence on the moon were pretty big at the time. You know, this mm-hmm. was just the pioneering stuff. supposed to be. Yeah, um, what, 
You know, you know, we may kind of already uh, touched on this, but uh, you know, what's the uh, symbolism of the the uh, title of your book, Across the Airless Wilds? Well, uh, no, it's not symbolic so much as just a accurate description of the. I mean, this is an environment that has no air, and you know, it's got a lot of other pretty hazardous features about it. You know, you you're looking at temperature extremes that range from plus to minus 250 degrees Fahrenheit. You're talking about a constant bombardment of cosmic radiation and micrometeorites that are, you know, the size of grains of sand, but they're moving faster than bullets. So if they hit you, they're going to leave a mark. And then uh, you've got no air. And, you know, excuse me, but that makes this a pretty interesting place to uh, to attempt to do anything, let alone you know, go go off on a ride. Um, it uh, it still amazes me that we were able to safely operate on the moon, given the you know the the state of technology at at the time. I mean, we produced a lot of really good technology for Apollo, but still, this is fifty year old technology, and looking at it through two thousand twenty one eyes, it. It just astounds me that we were able to pull it off. So the the title really is, uh, you know, I wanted to make the the point that this is an adventure story to a, a certain extent. It's it's a story of exploration, and um, I wanted to get the most important and hazardous element of the environment in which that adventure unfolded front and center. I think. You- I think you did. It's you know reading about the disorientation early on, and and you uh, did uh, touch on it. Uh, you know, the, towards the beginning of the show, it, it yeah that was uh, it just leaves you with a unnerving feeling reading it. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it scared me to read. It's it's spooky to read the transcripts. And, you know, you can read the transcripts uh, online. Anybody can do that. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not fast reads by any means because there's a lot of, a lot of technical, um, technical talk in there between Houston and, and the guys on, on the moon. But, uh, but when you read, for instance, uh, the transmissions during Alan Shepard and Ed Mitchell's ill-fated attempt to uh, to reach Cone Crater, you can really sense the growing frustration that they're feeling that they can't find this hole in the ground a thousand feet wide, and it should be right here. Where is it? You know, and they're and they're they're getting exhausted because they're climbing these pretty steep inclines one after another on this kind of ridged surface, and um, you know, they're getting really exasperated, and, and it seems impossible that they, they can't see the thing. Um, so it may, makes for compelling reading if you're patient enough to work your way through all the uh, the jargon. Yeah, it, it, and Earl, you, you, you mentioned it, you can read uh, some of these transcripts online, uh, but uh, what about some of the... Uh, uh, 
you know, corporate memos, you know, back and forth, uh, you know, between Huntsville and Seattle and Santa Barbara and, uh, you know, the GM he- headquarters, you know, did, did you have to use a, uh, you know, Freedom of Information Act for that? Or, you know, is that all online too? No, you none know, of it's online. Uh, that, all of that is at the National Archives and uh, in private collections at various universities. Uh, and mostly, mostly I've relied on uh, the National Archives. And NASA, God loved it, never threw away a single piece of paper. And, um, you know, there's nothing... In the in the archives uh, that I had access to, that was the least bit sensitive. You know, it's it's fifty year old stuff, and um, but you know, it, it was sensitive in the sense, I guess, that during the breakneck effort to build the rover, you know, things went wrong. It was very close to a fiasco. It it doubled. You know, the the budget was blown two times over. Um, mm-hmm. It seemed it seemed inevitable at, at points that it was going to blow through its deadline by months and it wouldn't go aboard Apollo 15. And people at NASA headquarters were very worried about that. And they were really alarmed at the, at the budget overrun. Um, you know, it, it, it more than it exceeded its budget by more than 100%, which is something that most government programs uh, do only accompanied by enormous scandal. Uh, and there was a very small scandal with this. Then went on and proved to be such a star, you know, the rover did. But, but the, um, you know, so that there is a lot of paperwork related to this anxiety and to this, you know, to the frustrations in Huntsville with what was happening in, you know, at Boeing and at General Motors, and, you know, some backbiting between Boeing and General Motors and some internal stuff from both and the bulk of it is at the uh you know the national archives is is set up regionally so you've got um you know the big national archives in dc and college park uh that handle all the the records of the headquarters of various government you know uh, enterprises so nasa headquarters all the all the paperwork it generated are held there um but the stuff from Huntsville is all at the National uh, Archives in Atlanta, and the stuff from Houston is all at the National Archives in Fort Worth. So I had to go to the, both of those archives and and sift through some papers. The vast bulk of it in Huntsville, and also some okay. Reyes papers and and some more rover paperwork is on file at the University of Alabama in Huntsville in the special collections of the Salmon Library, and. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's part of the fun of, for me, of writing a book is digging through papers and, and discovering things, you know, uh, making connections between stuff you read in different documents. And uh, and this was certainly a case where, where that happened a lot. Uh, and it, it's really nice to have a researcher like you as a guest to – and encourage you know, give, give a realistic um, view of what writing a book in, entails, and you know, hopefully, uh, pe- people tuning in will 
realize that, you know, depending on the subject, they they may have a daunting task, but it pays off when it's done right and you have an excellent storyteller to put all the pieces together. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, when I was a newspaper man, uh, I I, I think – the time I spent on stories would break down so that 80% of it was spent on reporting, digging up stuff, and gathering the facts, and 20% on the writing. And um, it's not quite that same breakdown. Well, you know, it might actually be close to that same breakdown with books. Um, it's probably closer to 70-30, uh, just because a book is, is such a big story, you know, sheer size of it, it takes a while to write the thing. But the um, but the fact gathering is is to my mind the most important element. Um, I would much rather have a poorly told story that's accurate than a beautiful piece of lyrical literature that's filled with mistakes and factual holes. And uh, you know that's just me, but that's I think that's the, that's job one is to get it right. Yeah, and. Uh, uh... When you, know, you have some um, maps in in your book that show the direction you know, where where the home base was, uh, the roads that the or paths that the uh, lunar uh, rover made to craters. Um, did, did the astronauts uh, name some of those uh, crater, you know, like, uh, like, you know, th- there was the Cone Crater you, you mentioned. Uh, there was the uh, Hadley Rill. Um, you, you, you know, there was some of these um, names of features that, that were really in- Interesting. Uh, what you know, what were some of those uh, important? What did we learn about some some of those geographic features on the moon? Well, to, to answer your question about names, uh, you know, the vast majority of of the major features of the moon have been named for hundreds of years, you know, they, they, and, and a lot of them have Latin names that reflect that. Uh, the, um, the astronauts tended to name features that they would need for navigating to their landing spot. So stuff that was close in to where they were going to put down. Uh, and also, you know, that, that they would use in their approach. And then they also named, they attached names to features that they would encounter on their drives or on their, foot traverses, although, you know, those were so short, they really didn't have to name much. So, for instance, on Apollo 16, the astronauts named a crater that they knew that they would be visiting and that they would pass on their way to other features, Palmetto, because Charlie Duke, the lunar module pilot on Apollo 16, is from South Carolina. So they they named that Palmetto. And there's, you know, there was a... uh, uh, they named craters for their wives. They named craters for uh, 
U.S. Geological Survey scientists who had trained them in geology. They named a, a mountain range for Gordon Swan on Apollo 15, for instance. And, uh, you know, they, uh, they did so, I think, with the, with the expectation that the names might not necessarily stick. But the fact is most of them have. Um, you know, the International Astron- Astronomical Un- Union uh, reserves the right to name features on the moon. Uh, but, hmm. you know, many of these were pretty minor features. They were s- small craters as moon craters go. Now, you know, a, a crater 1,500 feet wide on the moon is not a big crater. It would look enormous to you or me, but it's in the context of the moon, it's not that big a deal. And so what happened was a lot of them have stuck, and some of them already had names. They were renamed to mark, you know, to reflect. And, and the most, my, my favorite of those is the Ballet Crater, which was called the Lara Crater. Oh. It was visited by Apollo 17. And while the astronauts were uh, sampling for rocks uh, along its edge, Harrison Schmidt, Jack Schmidt, the lunar module pilot on Apollo 17, uh, tripped a couple of times and wound up pancaking onto the lunar surface, onto his stomach. And, and a uh, their Capcom, the guy at Mission Control who handled all the communications with the astronauts, he was an astronaut himself, said, his name was Robert Parker, said, uh, we, hey, Jack, we just got a call from the Houston Pop, or the Houston Ballet, and, you know, they're going to be selling season tickets, you know, for your performance next season or something <laughs> like that made some wiseacre comment. And in response, attempts like this balletic move, you know, launches himself up in the air and falls flat on his face. So the astronauts took to calling Lara Crater Ballet Crater from that point. And in 2019, I think, or may have actually just been last year, uh, the union came by, came back and said, yeah, we'll go with that. It's Ballet Crater from now on. So I was, uh, I was tickled to hear that. And there, there really wasn't a steering wheel on the vehicle. It was more like a joystick. And yeah, the, the uh, navigation device was programmed into you know the joystick, and you know that. Basically, a early version of GPS. No, no, no. It wasn't nearly oh. that sophisticated. It was. You know, Got to remember that on the moon, there's no magnetic field, so you can't use a compass. Anything that's compass based is no good. And uh, but what? And really, these are two separate questions. So let me tackle them in, in order. The joystick okay. was a recognition that you needed a, a way to control this thing that was lightweight, that was intuitive and that either astronaut could use sitting in the seat that he was assigned. So it had to be between them. You couldn't have a steering wheel. So it was a, it was an, it started out as an airplane style joystick and you, you drove the rover like you fly an airplane. You, you push the stick forward, the rover goes forward. You lean it to the right or left, the rover turns. You pull it back, the rover brakes. You pull it all the way back, you engage the parking brake. You flip a switch on the, on the handle and then pull it back and you go in reverse. And, the the stick was changed while the rover was being designed and built because the astronauts found that their gloves, you know, to hold on to a, a vertical joystick, it was just 
exhausting. It would cause actual pain in their hands and arms after a very few minutes. And it goes back to that pressurized suit, you know, and how difficult it was to move it all in the thing. And so what what uh, they came up with instead was a T-shaped handle that the astronaut, the driver, need only rest his palm on. And he didn't have to move it much to get get the rover to respond. And because the rover had steering both in its front wheels and its back, when you when you turned, you you turned. This thing could turn its own length, and uh, it you know five miles an hour doesn't sound like much, but when you're on loose lunar surf soil and then you you know you execute a turn in your own length, at five miles an hour is fast. You're you're doing a skid, and uh, it was a pretty exciting ride. Now the the navigation system, because it does you know there's no uh, no magnetic field, no way to to tell direction per se. What the what they came up with was a system that married two really simple components. One was a directional gyro that basically just it just tells you what direction the the rover's nose is pointed, and the other was the odometers in each of the four wheels. And uh, you know you, this thing just kept track of what direction the rover was headed and how far it was going in that direction before it turned, and you know, uh, just daisy-chained all of its various turns and distances together and could tell where it was based on where it started. That was the key. You had to know your starting point. As long as you knew your starting point and where the rover was pointed at your starting point, you could keep track of wherever you went. And this thing was was clever enough that it told the the astronauts how far they'd they'd gone, how fast they were going, um, how far... Uh, it was back to the lunar module and what was the best straight line heading back to base so that if they did get into trouble, they could get back by the fastest route. And if the thing failed and they found themselves miles from the lunar rover and without a navigation system, they would just follow their tracks back. Okay. Yeah, that uh, reading some of the passages about getting lost – sounds really ter- terrifying with you, you know you're disoriented anyways you, know, you can't you really can't see your feet you know hoping that you could follow your tracks if something if the lunar rover broke down i yeah it's you know and, and you don't have a scary book, but you, you know you are just presenting us with the science and you know things like that uh, really caught my attention. It, well, I mean, to NASA's credit, it it went through every every scenario that it could envision and uh, and came up with answers for each possible these guys might encounter. And luckily, uh, getting lost never happened. Uh, Getting uh, getting stranded miles from the lunar module never happened, but there was there was a plan if that happened, and um, and there was a backup plan to the plan, and a backup plan to the backup plan. It was it was taken out as uh, to a degree that uh, I think left the astronauts and everyone on the ground with with as much confidence as you could have, given just the overall danger of the Enterprise. You know, this was. There's no way to make this safe, but you can at least make it uh, make the risks uh, 
tolerable, you know, and, uh, and I think that that's, they did a good job of doing that. Yeah. And, and, uh, like the, uh, uh, seatbelt was too, too short and, uh, Scott had to, uh, Dave Scott had a buckle win, um, yeah, Jim Irwin. Well, I'm yeah, not sure uh, it really was too short, but but Jim Irwin did have a lot of trouble with the seatbelt, and Dave Scott did have to help him with it pretty much every time that that they buckled in. Um, but thank goodness they had those seatbelts because they would have bounced out of the rover in the first ten seconds of driving if they hadn't. I mean, this was a rock and rolling ride. It, uh, yeah, you know, it was like a bucking bronco, a slow motion bucking bronco. But still, you know, we're talking basically going to an amusement park and hanging off for dear life. It was that kind of ride, uh, and uh, they would not have lasted long without those seatbelts. You know, they changed the design of the seatbelt for Apollo 16 because of the difficulties they'd had on 15. And you know, there were subtle differences, but they made it the sort of you know the great thing about there are many com- you know you can make a lot of complaints about requiring that the astronauts be test pilots. Um, one of those complaints being that Wally Funk, the woman who went up today 60 years after she qualified in every other way as a Mercury astronaut, uh, had to wait that long to get to space. Uh, one of the good things about it is that uh, these guys were very good at coming back after a mission and being able to say exactly what improvement needed to be made to a piece of equipment. So when Dave Scott and Jim Irwin you know, when they got back, they were able to to detail the difficulties they had with the seatbelt and offer suggestions on how, how it might be improved. And as as minor a thing as that seemed, uh, that was one of the very few changes that were made between between rover iterations. You know, uh, the three that were sent were pretty close to clones of each other. You know, seatbelt was an exception. Fender design was an exception after Apollo 16. They changed the fenders a bit, um, and uh, yeah, there, there there weren't many others. Did seem like it was an evolving, adaptable program. Like they were listening to uh, Scott and Irwin's uh, feedback and how to improve the next time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they were. I mean, I think I think NASA did that a lot. In fact, you know, that that there was a point at which the idea of sending a rover up was kind of put into peril by that because Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin came back and uh and during their technical debriefing they they said that yeah, they had a heck of a time moving around and, and they reckoned that an astronaut on foot was good for maybe a half mile of travel, but not much more than that, given the difficulties of movement and such. Uh, but then when asked about the rover, you know, the prospects of a rover, they didn't think that would work at all. So so really, you know, in that case, the, thank God NASA did not listen to them. Uh, but, uh, you know, they thought, man, uh, you know, a rover with regular 32-inch tires on 16-inch on wheels, they It'll get swallowed up by craters. You know, you'll, you'll be turning so much you won't be able to go anywhere. And um, they recommended that if you were going to stick with a rover, you'd probably want one 
with wheels that were 20 feet across. And, of course, that was an impossibility. You couldn't fit it into the lunar module. So um, Sonny Morea and others in Huntsville who were leading up the project for NASA, they were able to calm everybody down after that technical debriefing and say, look, you know, they, they don't understand exactly what we have in mind in terms of how the style of driving you'll actually undertake you know, we're going to drive around the craters, not through them. We're going to, we're going to, you know, we're going to do our best to miss boulders, not drive smack into them. And, uh, right. And that calmed everybody down. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if and, you drove uh, the rover with common sense, you weren't going to have the kind of problems they first saw. Okay. And, and it, you know, these uh, lunar rovers did have TV cameras on and you know, you do tell us, you know, there, there's some problems, but, you know, uh, what was the, you know, just overall uh, transmissions for the uh, view, viewers watching at home or, uh, you know, back at the NASA headquarters? Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Mark, because I, I had failed to mention the TV camera before, and that was one of the great advances that the rover brought to the whole Apollo program as far as we at home were concerned. You know, if you remember Apollo 11, and I don't know if you remember 12 and 14, but Apollo 11 especially kind of set the model. Um, the astronauts put the TV camera on a tripod next to the lunar module. It was stationary. If they bounced off, off screen, they stayed off screen. The the camera did not follow them. You know, they they were just gone for a while, and then they'd wander back, bunny hopping around. <clears throat> and uh, it was like that on on twelve and on fourteen. When when Alan Shepard and Ed Mitchell went off to Cone Crater, they were gone for a couple of hours, and uh, there was just a blank screen on TV. <laughs> you know, that showed nothing changing. There was no wind or anything on the moon. Nothing was changing at all. Uh, there was a very slight if you if you sped up that video you'd be able to see the sun was moving in the sky, but you'd have to speed up the video to see it. So anyway, uh then Apollo fifteen comes along and now the T V camera is on the nose of the rover and it's not controlled by the astronauts, it is remotely controlled from mission control in Houston. There's an engineer there named Ed Fendel who who controls he's the cameraman. And, um, and so what happens is the you know the astronauts drive to wherever they're going to do science, wherever they're going to have a stop, and uh, the commander usually is the one who would get out and aim the TV antenna at Earth, the the high gain antenna. And if you if you can picture what the rover looked like, this was the big inverted umbrella thing that that stuck up from the front of front of the, basically the front bumper, for lack of a better way of putting it. And uh, it had to be aimed precisely at the Earth. And there was a little eyepiece on the back end of it that the commander would use, put the Earth in the middle of the circle, and, and that would aim the thing. And then you could start transmitting. And the pictures, this was an improved RCA color TV camera, that sh and the pictures were shockingly clear and bright and uh unlike anything that had been seen from the moon before. Uh, so, you know, not only were you getting scenes of a sort that had never been delivered to an earthly audience in the past, 
but you were getting in a much higher resolution and with much nicer color. Now, granted, there is not a lot of color on the moon. Uh, so most of the scenes look pretty black and white, except when the astronauts were on camera and then the color, you know, the, the American flags on their shoulders or whatever would, you know, you'd be able to pick those up. But uh, But the sharpness was a shock. I think people were very surprised by that. Yeah, and you know, since you mentioned that there's no air, no wind, uh, the the tracks are still visible. Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, you know, anyone who out there who still believes that we didn't go to the moon, and I know there are a few of them probably listening tonight, need only go online, and you'll find evidence that you may not regard as definitive, but is compelling. And it seems pretty definitive to me. Um, the uh, for about a dozen years, thirteen years now, we've had a, uh, a a satellite going around the moon called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, and it has a bank of cameras on it, wide angle and and, and close in. I guess uh, it's the best way to describe them. They're not exactly telephoto, but well, I guess they are. Uh, but what wide scope and narrow scope. Uh, and those cameras are the chief investigator for those cameras is a professor at uh, Arizona Arizona State, which has a school of Earth and space exploration. And you know, I'd like to go back to school just so that I could say that I was a student in the school of Earth and space exploration. Uh, anyway, this guy's name is Mark Robinson, and uh, and he is in charge of the pictures that the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter takes. And in 2011, uh, they, they shrunk the orbit of this, of this uh, orbiter to, to not far above the lunar surface at all. And they had it fly over the old Apollo landing sites. And the pictures it picked up are just fantastic. I mean, you can look at them. You can get lost in them for hours. Uh, you know, and they're of such detail, as I understand it from talking to Mark, that each pixel is about 20, represents about 20 inches across. So, I mean, you can't see individual footprints, but you can see a track where astronauts walked a lot. You know, you can see a path they took individually. You just can't see the individual prints. You can see the path they took. But what you can see is rover tracks, and they emerge, you know, they create a spray from these landing sites, these three landing sites, and they go on for miles. And you can actually, if you've got the time and inclination, you can sit there and you can you can follow along on each of their drives to each of their scientific stops by following the tracks. And it's just eerie and breathtaking and uh, wondrous, really. I mean, it's 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 exhilarating to look at these pictures and to realize, holy smokes, we were really there. And the other thing that's impressive about them is just how forbidding the lunar surface looks. You look at these pictures, you look at where these landings took place, and you realize these guys were out at the edge of the edge of the edge. This is a terrible place. This is a place that will kill you 50 different ways if it gets even a, the slightest chance. It's just, it's a mean looking landscape. And, uh, and that comes through loud and clear. And you just mentioned 
on one of the scientific stops that um, uh, was it Irwin who found the Genesis rock? Uh, uh, what's what was the? Well, it was Ir- Irwin and Scott. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things that that the Apollo 15 astronauts were charged with trying to do was to uh, to bring back some anorthosite, which is the this bright white uh, mineral that uh, on the moon was believed to have made up the original lunar crust. And, you know, the, the moon has been battered by meteor, meteorite strikes for its entire existence. And, and that is the biggest agent of change on the moon for the last God knows how long. Um, you know, the reason the moon is valuable as a place to study is that it's essentially a time capsule because it's, it's been dead since infancy. You know, you look around the Earth, it's a very dynamic planet, and there is constant change due to the effects of weather long-term, due to volcanism, to plate tectonic movement. Um, nothing stands still for long. You know, and uh, by way of inter- you know, illustration, I live now in the, in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, which are you know, about 3,000 feet tall in the main. And... Uh, Years ago, they were said to be as high as the Himalayas, or certainly the Rockies. They were among, you know, they were just enormous mountains. But they happen to be among the oldest mountains on Earth as well, and they've had time to wear down. And over the eons, it's hot, and those highlands that used to tower so high have been, you know, turned into into grain and, and have been washed downstream, and they've been carried towards the ocean, towards the Atlantic. And so nourished, the coastal plain, has grown to be 2,000 feet thick. I moved here from Norfolk, which is out on the coast. So when I stepped out of my house in Norfolk, 200 miles away, I walked on those ancient peaks. So that's the kind of change that goes on in, on Earth all the time. And it makes it very difficult to study the remote past and figure out what, what this place looked like and where it came from, how it formed. You know, basic questions. You go to the moon, however, and the moon has undergone very little change except by meteorite strikes. So, you know, its its composition remains much as it was four and a half billion years ago. So thinking, you know, that is why geology was such a an important part of Apollo. It was the one branch of science that could give us real answers, not into what, not only into what the moon was like, but the origins of Earth and of the solar system of the universe it, it it held the key to a lot of a lot of questions and uh, and Northosite was one of the important goals of Apollo 15 because lunar bedrock had never been recovered or not not lunar bedrock ancient lunar crust and and uh, on their second drive halfway up the side of a mountain, hundreds, you know, a couple hundred feet up the side of a mountain. Uh, Dave Scott and, and Jim Irwin found a big chunk of a northosite, estimated to be 4 billion years old, back here at home, immediately named it the Genesis Rock. At the time, it was the oldest sample that had been recovered. That was, that was soon surpassed. But, uh, but it, was, uh, it was quite a find. It was a big, big deal. And, uh, you know, it was such a big deal that that, you know, NASA 
the flight director of, of that particular day's or the, of that particular mission declared that second day's drive on the rover the greatest day of scientific exploration in, in NASA history, maybe in all of history. Captain it, Cook would have something to say about that, but still. It, it is that Genesis rock uh, curated at NASA headquarters or Huntsville? Do, do you know where well, that is now? Huntsville. I do not. I cannot tell you whether that is at the Smithsonian or uh, or still in Houston, but it's at one of the two. I would I would reckon uh, there's a lunar receiving laboratory that still has an awful lot of the samples, which you know are still loaned out to scientists around the world, still the subject of intense study and research. Fifty years later, I mean they're still providing answers to questions that we didn't know to ask back in 1971, and um, so this is a you know a program scientifically that just keeps on giving and giving and giving. Um, it's uh, you know it, it it it's pretty remarkable. In, in place of going back to the moon, we've at least continued to learn from it. Uh, it it's a worthy project to resume. And and it, it, you just mentioned Captain Cook. It, I think you've. Uh, you know, invoked his name a couple times. Uh, is is he an inspiration to you? Well, I think I mentioned earlier. I grew, you know I spent part of my childhood in England, and you, you can't you can't pass a school year in England without hearing about Captain Cook. I promise you that. It's uh, you know he's just a quite justly a huge hero there, and um, and ought to be. A hero everywhere, I think. Now, you know, there are, there are of course, uh, you know, there are issues with uh, his treatment of the people that, or his people's treatment of the people that they met. And eventually that led to his unfortunate demise. But, um, you know, I mean, this was a guy who was willing to spend years on an exploration. And, you know, his crew was thought enough of them that they were willing to go along with it, which is even more remarkable when you think about it. It's um, and so, uh, yeah. <laughs> a long answer to your very short question, Mark, is yeah, sure. I think he's uh, a Heckman inspiration. He's, uh, yeah. I think he was quite a guy. Okay. Yeah. yeah did uh, when you were in England, did did you go to his uh, museum in uh, Whitby? No, but you know, I was a schoolboy, and and you know, in uh, third, fourth, and fifth, and a piece of sixth grade, so I wasn't getting around independently a lot. Uh, oh, okay. I took a double decker bus to school every day, but that was you know my my to and from school was was the extent of my uh, intra city travels. But I, you know, I lived in in Alaska. I was a newspaper reporter in Anchorage for, for three years, and uh, I also lived in New Zealand for a while as a Fulbright uh, fellow. And uh, the, uh, you know, the presence of Captain Cook hangs heavy in the air in both places. Um, 
the hotel next mm-hmm. to my newspaper was called the Hotel Captain Cook. I mean, he he was the first, you know, I mean, he he laid out, he mapped out the whole coastline there. And uh, the same was true in New Zealand, where I lived in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or yeah, um, yeah, maybe blog talk will uh, you know get you know, get give us a uh, fan and uh, special uh, guest uh, all expense paid field trip to Whitby so we can walk up the Dracula steps to the church on top of the hill and also see the Captain Cook museum there but uh so you know, while while we hope for a field trip like that uh you know we're down to <laughs> you know, about ni- 90 minutes or 90 seconds left uh you know, do you want to plug your website or any, anything else upcoming appearances or conferences well well you know appearances are a big question mark still uh so uh you know we'll let those We'll let those bubble up as they come. Uh, I'm doing a combination, it seems, right now of, of virtual and in-person events where you do a reading and, and discussion virtually and then do a signing and in person. But they're, it's, so far, they're pretty regional. So I just say, you know, you can go to my website, earlswift.com, and uh, contact me there. You can you can buy the book at any, uh, any of, of the usual – Sources for books online and in person, and um, it's uh, yeah, that's that's what I got. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, th- thanks for staying uh, longer than uh, anticipated. Uh, hopefully, that means that you like the show and you won't send me hate mail. So that, <laughs> but but I I. I, I I guess it's how the listeners respond that really counts, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, yeah. But no, it's uh, my pleasure. I, you know, this is a subject I love to talk about. You, you spend a couple yeah. years of your life digging into a subject, and you get excited about it. Uh, it, it, it yeah, um, you, your your book was yeah, you know, or it is fascinating. I I really enjoyed it, and I just want to th- thank you for being a guest and. Uh, Love to have you come back and talk about your, your Tangier Island fisherman book. Uh, uh, that one looks like another uh, fascinating look at his, history. Be happy to. Okay, great. Um, okay, well, how, how about we wrap there on a uplifting note, and we'll <laughs> see everyone next week. Thanks again.